Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining me here on the first Homo Absurdus podcast. Uh, if you agree with what I'm saying or if you disagree, um, I'd love to hear about it. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, at Homo Absurdus, that's at H-O-M-O-A-B-U-R-D-U-S uh, on Twitter. And let me know if you love what I'm saying, if you hate what I'm saying, if you think I'm an idiot, uh, if you think there's something I've missed. Uh, Over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about a variety of subjects. Um, But today I'm going to start off talking about syllogisms, which is how to form a logical argument or a logical form of argument. Um, And I'm also going to point out some logical fallacies. Um, I think these are really important. I think it's something that as a society, we've maybe largely lost the ability um, to look at clearly, to look at properly. And it's given rise to a lot of frankly very fuzzy thinking um, people perhaps presenting ideas that if they understood this better they maybe would understand wrong or supporting ideas that they again if you understood syllogisms and logical fallacies better you might understand are just simply incorrect the other interesting thing um, about syllogisms uh, is in certain types of syllogism at least uh, with categorical syllogisms you as long as the the premises are sound uh, and the form is valid you can't be wrong the conclusion has to be correct uh, and i think that's a really powerful tool and one that maybe um we've lost a little bit um but it is really powerful if, if you if you're forming your argument properly um and your suppositions are correct then you can't be wrong um and i think that that's that's a really interesting thing to think about but yeah we're just going to plow straight into this now uh, so today we're going to talk about the different types of syllogism um that there are um, and then we can look at some of the uh, the logical fallacies that are often found within um, f- fallacious syllogisms. And yeah, I've already mentioned it, but let's have a look at categorical syllogisms. So what's a categorical syllogism? So a categorical syllogism essentially uses the logical pattern, if A is part of C, then B is also part of C. Um, well, what does that mean? Um, essentially, uh, it means that if we have, as I said before, the right forms um, and we have valid premises, then our conclusion will be true. Uh, but that's the logic if you want to think about it. There are some great Venn diagrams uh, you can find online. Just Google categorical syllogism and have a look at the images. Uh, one of the first there will be a Venn diagram. Uh, I have an example here, I think. Uh, so let's see. Uh, yeah. So the first premise, my major premise, um, I should actually point out here, um, that a categorical syllogism has three points to it. Uh, it has a first premise, a second premise, and a conclusion. The first premise often referred to as the major premise, and the second premise as the minor premise. So as an example, the, the first or major premise, I would say is that, for example, I could say, all cars have wheels. As my minor premise, I could say, I drive a car. My conclusion could be that, therefore, my car has wheels. Now, as long as these two premises are sound, which they appear to be, uh, and the form is valid, which it is, um, then the conclusion must be true. Um, so all cars have wheels. It's pretty sound, at least at the moment, until we get into floating cars. I drive a car. Okay, could be true. I don't. Um, and finally, my car has wheels. Well, then, yeah. Um, if all cars have wheels, I'm driving a car. It, by definition, will have wheels. One is part of the other is part of the other. Um, now, it's important to note here, there are other types of syllogism, um, and I'm going to talk about them a little bit um, right now before we come back to this one. So I think it's important to hang on to that, that categorical syllogism is the best way um, to formulate an idea. And if you can make somebody else's ideas fit into a categorical syllogism, then you can be able to deconstruct them, to look for the truth claims of what they're saying, 
uh, in a much more prevalent, much more constructive way. Um, and you can talk about what that is and what that sounds like. There are a couple of others, though. Uh, there's also uh, conditional syllogisms, or, or the hypothetical syllogism, as it's sometimes known, which says that if A is true, then B is also true. Um, this generally is going to have one premise and a conclusion. Um, so, for example, I might say uh, my first premise, or the major premise, is Tom likes Japan. Inclusion must be that Tom likes all Japanese things, therefore Tom likes manga. Now, whilst this could be true, Tom likes Japan, therefore Tom likes manga, it's not necessarily true. But it could be. Uh, the, another one is called a disjunctive syllogism. Um, this is where you say that since A is true, B must be false. Um, it kind of relies on a dichotomy. Um, so it doesn't necessarily state whether or not the premise is correct, um, but it does show that another premise is not. Uh, so, for example, and this is difficult to kind of put together, but um, if I have some gum, I could say this must either be mint gum or juicy fruit gum. Premise two, it's not juicy fruit gum. The conclusion, therefore, it's mint gum. Um, if A is true, B must be false. Um, it's interesting, that one often suffers from uh, a fallacy that we'll look into later uh, called a false dichotomy, um, which is exactly what I've just presented there. But we'll, we'll come back to that, by all means. Um, and finally, uh, enthromemes, uh, or rhetorical uh, syllogisms. Now, these not really syllogisms as such, um, but they are often used um, during uh, public speaking or um, any kind of rhetoric, rhetoric sort of situation where one is discussing something. Um, and they often appeal to, to various different fallacies. Um, so, for example, you might have the statement, uh, he could not have committed the murder. I know him and the kind of person that he is. So premise one, he could not have committed the murder. Because premise two, I know his character, um, which brings us to this conclusion. It's interesting to say it's not really syllogism, as you can notice it doesn't follow the pattern of premise one, premise two, conclusion, or even premise, premise, or even premise, conclusion. It, it, it just kind of follows a semi-logical pattern. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be untrue, but it also doesn't guarantee the truth of it. Um, it's often popular, uh, say, in rhetoric or public, public speaking. Um, yeah, and also it's nice pointing out there are some false forms. So let's just very quickly touch on this while we're talking about um, syllogisms in general. We have the syllogistic fallacy. Um, so um, this essentially is where we make um, we make an assumption that is that is untrue, um, and it, it it leaves us in a position where the conclusion could be untrue. So best to give you an example. So if I say premise one, all crows are black. If my second premise, the bird in my office is black, uh, then the conclusion would be, this bird is a crow. Now that, that could be true, because crows are black, and but not all birds are black. So there's, there's a clear problem there in my, my logistic fallacy, and that, that's a, a really key one. Um, now not a lot of people make this uh, make this problem anymore. A lot of people call this a sophism. It's not quite accurate, but a lot of, not a lot of people make this mistake anymore. It's kind of widely known. Um, to not be true. So talking of which, rather than talking about things that are wrong or things that are incorrect syllogisms, let's go back to our first one. Let's go back and look at the most important thing I'm talking about here, categorical syllogisms. So categorical is an important word, um, and I think it means exactly what you think it does. Um, you know, something is undeniable. 
Now, this categorical syllogism, if A is part of C, then B is also part of C. There are a list of rules, bless, that we've come up with. Um, say we, nothing to do with me, but philosophy has come up with, um, that tell you whether or not a categorical syllogism is correct. And these could apply to other syllogisms as well, because the theory holds true with some of the others, but they, they mostly apply to categorical syllogisms. And I think that's mostly what we're going to talk about today when I talk about syllogism, or if I bring it up. Um, I'm generally referring to that concept, premise one, premise two, conclusion, a categorical syllogism. The six rules, though, of categorical syllogisms, and these are important, I think. Rule one, there should be three parts, no more, no less. So you have a major premise, a minor premise, and a conclusion. Rule number two, the minor premise must appear in one of the other premises. Um, rule three, any terms that you use in the conclusion must also appear in one of the relevant premises. One can't have that disconnected jump. Rule four, you can't have two negative premises. Rule five, uh, if one premise is negative, then the conclusion will also be negative. Uh, finally, rule six, uh, from two universal premises, no conclusion, conclusion may be drawn. So that's to say if you said that all crows are black and all crows also have wings. It's like, okay, it doesn't bring us to a conclusive point. So two universal concepts, they have to be, they have to be at least one of them has to be specific. They don't both have to be, but at least one of them has to have some kind of specificity to it. So what, perhaps one of the most um, famous categorical um, syllogisms in history uh, comes from Socrates, as you might expect. <laughs> uh, and he says, premise one, all men are mortal. Now, you'll notice that is a universal premise. He says, premise two, Socrates is a man. And conclusion, therefore, Socrates is mortal. And the same, of course, can be said of anyone. Um, you can say it of yourself, and, and you wouldn't be wrong. Um, you know, if, if all men are mortal and you are a man, then or woman, for that matter, uh, then you are mortal. So let's have a little look at the difference between uh, the concepts of validity and truth value, um, because some people often get mixed up here. So when I was talking earlier, I spoke a bit about um, validity uh, and form. So as long as the structure of, of syllogism is correct, and we've, we've spoken a lot about the structure of syllogisms uh, for the last 10 minutes or so. So perhaps if we look at um, validity. So how do I tell whether or not um, a given premise is valid? Because that, that's what's going to make the difference. If, if both the premises, remember, are valid, and the form is correct, then the conclusion must also be true. Can't not be. So how do we tell? This is where it gets a little bit murky, as you'd imagine. Um, the first thing important to note out is the difference between validity and truth value. Now, they may sound like very similar terms, and they, they are. Um, but validity um, is talking about the internal structure of an argument. Um, so validity is to say, how valid is the structure of my syllogism? Um, whereas truth value is literally what it sounds like. Are the premises true? Are the premises accurate? So, as an example of one that contains problems, let's see if we can deconstruct this. Premise one, the streets are wet when it has rained recently. Premise two, I observe that the streets are wet. Conclusion, it has rained recently. Where's the error? I mean, these things are all true, they're all correct, but 
we know that if we see a wet street, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's rained recently. And it's an odd assumption to make. Essentially, it's premise one, isn't it? Um, if the streets are wet, it has rained recently. It's not directly saying, but it's certainly implying that the only reason a street would be wet, wet rather, street would be wet, is because it's rained recently. And we know this to not be the case. Um, there could be a sprinkler, someone could have dropped some water, someone could have urinated on the street. There's a many different, a multitude of ways in which streets can become wet. Um, so premise one um, isn't accurate. It would be accurate if we changed to one of the way streets are wet is because it has rained recently. And I could say the streets are wet, and then I could have the conclusion one of the reasons for this could be that it has rained recently. And then that would be true. Um, and that's really the difference, and it's deconstructing that validity. So often simply because something doesn't have a, an absolute truth value to it doesn't mean that it's wrong. And in fact, in this example, it could be absolutely accurate. Um, but the thinking is off. And sometimes it really is a matter of looking at that syllogy and adding an extra word or an extra phrase or, or rephrasing something so that when you get to the conclusion and you use that um, that same form, as we said back in the rules a moment ago, um, you've got that part in there in one of those premises. And obviously without it, it's not going to work. <laughs> Logical fallacies. So there's a number of logical fallacies to look out for, um, and there are quite literally hundreds of these. Um, Modern-day philosophers keep coming up with more, people keep thinking of more. Um, I believe Matt Delahunty's famous uh, Doyle fallacy, as in Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, where he talks about that. Uh, but without getting sidetracked, um, let's talk about some classic uh, logical fallacies, shall we? The first of these we're going to look at uh, is called the slippery slope fallacy. Now this, this essentially ignores the basis of one position uh, and only assumes that one outcome will occur based on the opposing position. What does that mean? Well, um, an example would be once uh, all gun owners have registered their firearms, the government will know exactly from whom to confiscate them. Now, this is an often heard argument um, amongst certain political classes and it's fallacious. Um, the main reason being that that's not the only outcome. It's one possible outcome, granted, but it doesn't fit uh, the syllogistic pattern. Uh, it doesn't have validity, it doesn't, it doesn't follow the, the pattern correctly, and therefore the outcome is not necessarily true. It's also not necessarily untrue. Um, you know, once, once all gunners have registered their firearms, the government will know from whom to confiscate them, but it implies that they're then going to confiscate them, and in fact that that's the only possible outcome from that scenario. And obviously that's fallacious. Um, it's important to point out that it, it could be used for other things, such as making sure that uh, people who own guns are allowed to do so and are the right sort of people to own guns. Um, and it could have some very positive outcomes as well. Um, so yeah, slippery slope fallacy. So essentially when you encounter this, it's going to imply um, that something is the only possible outcome from a set of premises without demonstrating that that's the case. And that's what makes it fallacious. It can be quite convincing, especially uh, in rhetoric, um, but it's not necessarily true. I, I think that's important to note. It's also important to note that indeed it could be true. Um, the requirement, however, for it being true would be to demonstrate that that's the case. Uh, and no attempt has even really been made with this argument to demonstrate that that's the case, because you're not supporting your own position. 
uh, or rather the speaker isn't resorting their own position, they're simply assuming an outcome based on the opposing position. Okay, so yeah, when you hear this one, maybe just think to yourself, okay, that is possible, certainly, but what evidence can you provide me with that shows that is the case? And just as importantly, if you can't provide me with evidence to show that is the case, why then should I believe that it's the case? Simply because something's possible doesn't mean that it's true. Or equally as importantly, it doesn't show me that it's more likely to be true than one of the other possible outcomes. So going back to our example, um, once all gun owners have registered their firearms, the government will know exactly from whom to confiscate them. Implies, as I said, that the government will confiscate firearms from people. But it doesn't necessarily show me that that will happen, or even that it's likely to happen. Um, without evidence to support for something, um, it's just a slippery slope fallacy. To say this one comes up a lot, um, oftentimes in political rhetoric, but in other rhetoric too, um, and I say it, it doesn't follow the right pattern and it doesn't follow the right uh, truth requirements for something to be necessarily, definitively true. second fallacy we're going to have a look at today is called the straw man fallacy. So this makes an exaggerated version of the original argument, uh, then knocks it down, and essentially claims victory over the original argument. An example, so person A says, uh, I support the separation of church and state. And person B says, ah, so you support godless communist atheism. See, Russia, China, Cuba, didn't work out so well there. Now, this is interesting because um, it's not really attempting to even attack the argument. Um, what it's doing is creating a caricature of the original argument um, and then knocking that down and claiming victory. Uh, hence the name is Straw Man. Uh, if you imagine a, a person made of straw and you claim it's a real person, um, but yet it can't walk or move. Uh, essentially, this, this is more of a discrediting, um, but again, it, it happens very often. Um, people will try and equate things that don't necessarily equate one to the other and they'll compare apples and oranges if you will um, and then claim that they've knocked down the original point or the original argument now, this can often be quite frustrating uh, especially in conversation so it's important I think to stop someone and point it out and I often do this I often say well that, that seems like a straw man fallacy there that you're committing um, and if need be I'll, I'll stop and explain to them what that means at least in some simple terms um, so essentially what you want to do um, if faced with this is drag someone back to your original argument um, to say I support the separation of church and state this is the example I have written down here and that's not necessarily that doesn't necessarily equate to I support communism or I support the regimes of Russia China and Cuba um, those two things are quite separate claims um, whilst one we may widely agree with or disagree with um, it doesn't have any impact on the original assumption that I made, the original argument that I've made. Um, so yeah, this this say is one that people do very often. Um, say, well, if you do that, then you must support this, and this is blatantly absurd. Therefore, you are blatantly absurd, and that's like I say, it's it's not true. Um, it doesn't follow, and it's fallacious. Um, and it's an easy trap to get stuck in because if you don't point it out, someone may well build an argument on the basis of that. Equally, they may well be convinced that that's what you mean. They may say you are being unclear. 
So perhaps it's good to go back and justify to say, well, in this case, for example, I support separation of church and state. And someone says, oh, well, then you support godless atheist communism like Russia, China and Cuba to say, well, well no, I, I don't support godless atheist Cuban is just Russian or Chinese um, political states but I still hold my original point which has nothing to do with that which is that church and state should be separate okay, Continuing in the same uh, quasi-political theme we're going to move on um, hasty generalisations um, now, this is an interesting fallacy. Um, essentially what this means is to use a non-representative sample and then to generalise it to the entire population. Um, it's often referred to as identity politics, but is also known as an insufficient sample, a converse accident, a faulty generalisation, a biased generalisation, or simply jumping to a conclusion. Now, again, this is something you'll, uh, you'll see quite commonly. Um, again, predominantly in political circles, but not only. Um, generally, it's because the sample size that they've based this on is way too small. Um, and it leads to all kinds of problems. And I mentioned identity politics earlier, I guess because this recently has come up a lot in the way of um, race, um, social class, uh, your sexuality, all kinds of other things, uh, where one can simply look at a small sample and decide this is the case. So um, in the UK, um, we have a wonderful individual called Tommy Robson, and um, he has this. He, he commits this fallacy all the time. Uh, he points to a group of paedophiles uh, in the north of the country uh, who were all of Muslim descent, and hastily generalises to say that all Muslims are therefore paedophiles or prone to paedophilic behaviour. Um, so it's an obvious logical fallacy there. I, I hope that everyone can see. But it's not only um, in these ways that it can happen. Um, one can assume that because somebody is wearing a suit and is white, they're not going to rip you off or try and rob you. And, and again, this isn't true. Um, so it's a very dangerous area. Um, I guess one of the main problems with it is that people make these generalizations for good or, or ill and then follow through with them. Uh, and they continue to color their whole lives um, and all their interactions with other people based on these faulty assumptions. So often when someone says, you know, I have observed X, therefore it is true for the whole population, it's good to go back and go, well, you don't know all of them. You know, that, that's often the reply that, that I'll give when someone says, oh, I don't like gays. Okay, how many do you know? Do you even know a representative sample of the population of homosexuals? And the answer is almost certainly no. Um, and it's just important to point out that what they're making is, is this hasty generalization fallacy. Um, they're jumping to a conclusion. Um, so again, they've missed off the premises, they're just jumping straight to the conclusion. And hopefully from uh, earlier where we went through what uh, categorical syllogism looks like, um, it's clear enough that uh, just jumping straight to the conclusion is not going to get you anywhere near the truth. Okay. So the next one we're going to look at uh, is called ad hominem, uh, which literally means against man. Um, this is defined really as attacking the arguer rather than the argument. Um, now I think we're all guilty of this to some extent. I know I certainly am, and I, I know most people I speak to are. Um, I, I maybe did it a little bit just now. Uh, when I talked about Tommy Robson, I, I very much disregarded his hasty generalisation. 
But I guess I did it because I don't like the man. I don't like his political stance. Now, that could be described as ad hominem, I suppose. I, I wouldn't say that it was. Um, I think I've shown other rational justifications for his uh, his logical argument being fallacious. But it's, again, a difficult one to, to not jump into. At the point you know what someone's conclusions are going to be um, and that you know that you're going to disagree with their overall point or or their political standpoint or their philosophical standpoint, um, you can begin to say, well, I don't want to hear that because it's come from you. And I've had people say this to me, um, where I said, you know, you go and look at this book by this person or this paper by that person. Um, and they say, well, I don't want to because he said this in the past or he's done that in the past. Um, so again, yeah, ad, ad hominem is, is a dangerous one because you're really disregarding the argument whatever it is the argument could be logically sound it could be it could be an absolute categorical syllogism but simply disregarding it because you don't like the individual um is dangerous at best um and can be outright deceptive at worst uh, again it's very easy to do because someone can it can be justifiable to that individual at least um to say that they don't like that person or the way the thing that they stand for um, and therefore they must be wrong. I think it's important then to, to really listen to what it is that they have to say. Um, and if you're going to criticise someone's argument because you think they're wrong, then look at the conclusion they've made, look at the the form of argument they've used to reach that conclusion, and criticise that. Um, look for the fallacies in the argument, not in the individual or in their personality. Because that, that doesn't get you any closer to truth either. It, it's just a matter of, you know, I don't like you, therefore I don't agree with you. Rather than, I don't agree with you, and therefore I don't like you if you continue to hold that position which is an entirely different conclusion and hopefully the one I was making in the case of Mr Robson. It's also interesting at this point uh, to point out um, there's another type of fallacy called the genetic fallacy um, which essentially is ad hominem but to things or positions rather than people. Um, so it can apply to anything uh, rather than people. So uh, one might say, oh I'm having internet problems, my internet is slow uh, and you might say, oh, well, you know, which internet provider are you with? Oh, I'm in it with AOL. Well, well, there's your problem. And again, it doesn't get us to the truth of what the problem with the internet was or, or even formulate a logical argument as to what the problem might be. It's simply an ad hominem, but not about people. Um, it's not really distinct. It's the same set of logic, so I'm going to kind of lump it in together with ad hominem. Um, but yeah, that's the, the genetic fallacy, which is where you essentially say ad hominem, but at a thing rather than a person. Okay, the next one's a nice meaty one. Uh, this is called the argument from authority. Now, this is only a fallacy um, if the person or authority pertained to does not have the authority to, have, to make such a claim. Um, but often people point towards scientists or science or some equally fallacious thing um, and claim that because a majority of scientists believe, um, then X must be the case. Um, now, say this this isn't necessarily fallacious. It is only fallacious if one can show that the authority being appealed to doesn't have the authority to support said claim. And there's a nice little quick list I'm going to share with you um, of quick and good ways to spot whether or not somebody has the authority um, to speak about a particular thing. So there are six points on this list. I'll quickly rattle them off. Uh, number one, the person has sufficient expertise in the matter in question. That is the person uh, of the correct area of expertise. Two, the claim being made is within their area of expertise. So again, a scientist has a very broad term, 
um, to relate back to our previous example, um, and someone who's a genealogist might have very little to say about cosmology, and vice versa. Uh, point three, um, there is an adequate degree of agreement between other authorities on the same subject. Um, so, for example, a fringe scientist with a fringe belief, um, whilst he might be qualified as a an engineer, um, if he's outnumbered 100 to 1 by other engineers, his claim about whatever is probably fallacious, or at least can't be said to be an authority that you could appeal to. Uh, point four, um, the authority is not being overly biased. Now, this is interesting because everyone's biased to some degree, um, but for example, going back to our engineer example, if an engineer says, uh, my building would never fall down, and then their building fell down, and they claim that this is because of some outside force, rather than a natural force, um, they might be significantly biased um, in their opinion that their building would never fall down. Um, fifth, uh, the area of experience is in fact a legitimate area. Now this is a good one because this does come up quite a lot. Um, people will claim to be a specialist in a certain area because they've quote-unquote done their research. And I think we've all come across these people uh, online and in real life. Um, you know, I've watched X, Y and Z YouTube video and therefore I have the expertise to comment on this and I'll appeal to my own authority. And finally, importantly, the authority itself must be identified. So going back to our, our previous example where we talked about scientists uh, or people who, who study science, it's not really good enough. If you're going to appeal to an authority, I want to know who it is, what qualifications they have, whether or not they're in direct conflict with the rest of the community uh, about their area of expertise, and that it actually relates to the thing you're talking about. And if all those are the case, then this is by no means fallacious. Um, if you're saying this is a genuine authority on a subject that they should be an authority on, and they're not a fringe view, um, and I'm identifying the individual concerned, then, yeah, that, that's probably a, a valid uh, appeal to authority. But an argument from authority is a fallacy uh, because it's not any of those things. Just bear those in mind when you come across it. Okay, next up um, we have ad populum, um, which means from the population or of the population. Um, now this, this comes up quite often um, as well as to all of these, really, which is why I'm bringing them up. Um, a good example of this, just to really clarify what this means, so for example if I were to say more people prefer Coke to Pepsi, therefore Coke is better than Pepsi, definitively. So yeah, it should be obvious, I hope, um, that simply because something is popular um, doesn't necessarily make it true. Um, this is often used by proponents of a theistic argument, for example, a majority of the people on earth believe in a god, therefore it's likely that a god exists. And obviously those two things don't necessarily relate to one another, and they're not really, they're not really related topics at all. Um, something, something's popular doesn't speak to how true it is, and that's, that's normally how I frame it when someone says, oh you know, so many people have noted, I don't know, the, the Mandela effect. Um, there must be something to it. And I'd say, well, actually, simply because a large number of people believe something to be the case, doesn't really speak to whether it's true or not. Um, you know, 99% of the world's scientists in the 1600s would have believed that the world was flat until they were proven wrong. And it didn't really have any impact on whether or not that claim was true. Um, it certainly didn't help show that it was true. Um, 
or false for that matter. So this is an interesting fallacy. Um, and people almost always use it in a positive context um, to try and defend something or to try and give something extra weight, which probably isn't going to be justified when you get right down to the nitty gritty of it. Right, next up I've got a couple here that um, I always like to think of as a pair, um, and that the appeal to or the argument from ignorance, uh, and the appeal to or the argument from personal incredulity. Um, and I, I'm going to put these together because I think they're, they're often presented together and they're often confused, and people that make one uh, of these two fallacies will often make the other, um, or even make that same fallacy twice. So let's talk about what they are. Um, so the appeal to ignorance um, is say that something is true because it has not been proven to be false, or that something is false because it has not been proven to be true. And essentially what this boils down to, um, in practical terms, is I don't know, therefore I know. Yeah, so this happens a lot. Um, and this happens a lot with uh, arguments mostly of the what we might call conspiracy theory uh, groupings. So for example, a UFO, an unidentified flying object. I might say, I don't know what those lights in the sky are, therefore they're aliens. Well, there's an obvious fallacious argument there. You said, I don't know, and then followed it with, therefore I know. Well, those don't follow, do they? <laughs> in fact, they're, they're point opposites. Um, and people often present this in, in different ways. Um, but yeah, the, the argument personal incredulity says that because I find a conclusion or premise unbelievable, um, then it is unbelievable. For example, um, I don't think it's right to teach children about homosexuality. No reasonable person would. That's, again, that's an argument from personal incredulity. You don't like the idea, therefore it is wrong. Um, and it's the same as saying, I don't know the answer, therefore I know the answer. I don't like the answer, therefore that's not the answer. Neither of them hold any real weight in logical argument or debate, um, and neither of them gets any closer certainly to the truth. They certainly don't help us form a reasonable uh, syllogy that we can we can deconstruct and work off of. Um, all they really do is confirm the bias of the individual giving the argument. So yeah, I've I've had some trouble with this one before, uh, quite recently actually pointing out to a friend of mine online, who whilst appeared to acknowledge it then went on to make those same claims again. Um, I guess I think it's important to, when you get to that point, to stop someone. When they say, well I don't know, go, okay stop. We don't know. I can agree. I don't know either. Neither of us know. What's your point? And if they then go on to say, well, therefore, it could be this, it's like, well, well, no, we don't know. And at that point, we don't know should be the end of the conversation. Equally, um, I don't like it, or I don't like the conclusion you've come to, I don't really care. You don't like the conclusion, so what? That just speaks to your bias of what you want the conclusion to be. As to be fair, does the argument of ignorance, which is why I put these two together, um, they all really suffer from the same problem which is the person generally giving these arguments has going to already have decided on what the conclusion is before they've started the argument. They've already made the conclusion in their head that they want X to be the case, and they're now trying to prove it. Whereas obviously what one should do is observe the evidence as it's given, observe the arguments as it's given, have the discussion as it's given, and then from that reach a conclusion. They'll start with it. And both of these kind of give us a key that that's what that individual is doing. Um, they're, they're concerned about proving their point, um, they're concerned about sounding convincing, but also I guess it, it's important not to be too harsh on these people because often 
um, they don't know about this. They don't really understand this fallacy or that it is a fallacy. Um, and all they're really trying to do is is get other people to agree with them, which is very natural and very human. But I say, I think saying, okay, just because you don't like something doesn't mean it's not true. You know, I, I often bring up the example of, well, I don't like rape. That doesn't mean that rape doesn't happen. Okay? Uh, and equally, if we don't know, let's agree we don't know, and then let's end the conversation there. We don't know if, I don't know, we don't know if a god exists, we don't know if 9-11 was an inside job. And if we don't know, then that's the end of the conversation, not the beginning of a conclusion. Okay, uh, our next fallacy that we again see quite often is called the ad hoc fallacy. Um, uh, literally, that means for the purposes of, or for the purpose. Uh, now, this is usually added um, at the end of a shaky or unstable premise um, in order to justify it further. Um, normally, after an objection has been raised, so in this example. So I have an example here, so um, let's say person A says, um, if you take these essential oils, you won't get a cold this winter. And person B says, well I did that last year, I still got a cold. And person A comes back with, well, you must not have taken the right essential oils, or you had bad oils. This is an ad hoc argument. You've been shown that your argument isn't sound and doesn't carry validity, um, and you've then gone back and added something else. Obviously, the, what you should have said is if you don't take the right essential oils, the ones that I mean, that would then absolutely prevent this from happening, then this will happen. Um, yeah, so it's, it's normally, say, an interesting way to justify a premise that's wrong in the first place. Um, at the point someone's added something on the end, uh, I think, again, it's important to stop them and say, well, no, wait, you're now justifying a thing that a moment ago was absolutely true, but now it's only absolutely true if, when I raise an objection to it, you put something else on the end not awfully convincing um, and as a logical fallacy uh, also no it doesn't fit the form of the uh, categorical syllogism that we looked at earlier which would go premise premise conclusion not premise premise conclusion premise 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 conclusion premise conclusion which is essentially what this is trying to do um, and it, it just corrupts the form and it poisons that well Next up, we have the non sequentia or non sequentia, um, which literally just means does not follow. Um, so an example of this might be thousands of people have seen lights in the sky, and they cannot explain them, and this points to the existence of life on other planets. Hmm. <laughs> now this relates a little bit back to what we were saying before uh, about the argument for ignorance. I don't know, therefore I know. Um, but it, it can be applied in much broader terms, um, which is that this is saying what you're essentially saying is that doesn't necessarily follow. Yeah? So essentially, all logical fallacies are to some extent or another a non-sequentia. Um, but this really covers those that don't fit into any other categories. So when it's obvious that one thing doesn't flow from another, there's been a leap of logic. You've reached a conclusion without providing adequate premises for it. Um, and obviously this can get you to some very odd places. Next up, uh, we've got tautology, um, or circular reasoning. Uh, now this happens most, I see this during um, discussions about theistic arguments, 
the example I'm going to use here is going to be theistic, but then let's just take that away from it. Essentially what it means is that a is equal to a. Now this is only a fallacy in so much as it doesn't move the argument any further forward. It doesn't tell us anything more about the truth or falsehood of the claims being made. So for example, um, the Bible is true because the Bible says it is true. Um, how do we know the Bible is true because the Bible is the word of God? How do we know the Bible is the word of God because the Bible says it is? Well, great. Um, all you've really done there is show me that a equals a, one equals one. It doesn't really get us any further along the route. It doesn't take us anywhere. It just goes round in a circle and back to the beginning of the principle. It's not supporting your argument. It's certainly not following the form of a categorical syllogism. Um, and is kind of obviously fallacious, um, and hopefully you can see why. But people do use it in other cases. Um, it's most common, as I say, though, theistically. Um, whether you're a believer or not, um, it's not a good reason to believe something. Um, I think that's important to point out. Um, there's not necessarily anything wrong with coming to the conclusions you're coming to, but this isn't a good way of doing it, um, because you're, you're relying on one thing being true for the other thing to be true that relies on the first thing being true. Which, to say, doesn't get us any closer to whether or not it is in fact true. Okay, now we can come back to uh, something you mentioned earlier uh, when I was talking about one of the types of um, syllogies, uh, syllogisms rather, uh, which is the false dichotomy. Now, simply because you hear this argument doesn't necessarily mean it's fallacious, but let's explain why. So a, a false dichotomy says that two mutually exclusive options are the only options. Yeah. So, for example, uh, a government minister might say, we must cut spending on education, otherwise we'll go further into debt. Do you want to go further into debt? Well, we can't afford that, so we have to make cuts to education. Now, clearly, there's more than two possibilities there. One could go further into debt, one could cut something else. There are many other options. Um, but they are mutually exclusive. Um, and if they are the only two options, then this isn't a fallacy. And there are some examples where that is the case. Um, I normally bring this up when I'm talking about free will. Um, so, for example, with free will, there are only two reasons a person will commit an action, either because they're forced to or because they want to. Now, this is a dichotomy, but not a false dichotomy. There really are no other reasons as to why someone would commit an action. Um, either they want to do something, or they're being made to do something. There, there isn't another one. But in a lot of cases, there are other options. But if you present this, especially, again, in rhetoric, and especially politically in this case, really, um, if you present this as such and say, well, you either have option A or option B, you don't want option B, so it looks like it's option A, this is clearly a false dichotomy. Um, I say this goes back to when we were talking uh, about the different types of uh, syllogies and we talked about disjunctive syllogisms when A is true, B must be false um, and that's often the, uh, the fallacy you see paired with that which I think I, I mentioned earlier, if not, I'm mentioning it now <laughs> That brings us on to begging the question. Again, this is uh, a super common one. Um, and it's important to note before we go into this that this doesn't necessarily make the argument untrue, but it is fallacious, and hopefully you'll see why. Um, it's where one or more major premises are not laid out before the conclusion is made. 
Yeah. Uh, an example might be uh, if we label foods as having a high cholesterol content, people will make healthier food choices. Okay, that may be true. Also, might not be true, but it hasn't stated a whole bunch of premises. It hasn't stated whether cholesterol in food causes cholesterol in people. It hasn't stated whether better food labeling will reduce cholesterol intake. It hasn't stated that um, having high cholesterol is even a bad thing. It hasn't, it hasn't, for example, explained that people make food decisions based uh, on the descriptions on food labels. It assumes a whole bunch of things. It assumes a whole bunch of premises that would be required for that conclusion to be made. So it's begging the question. Um, and again, this happens quite a lot. People say, well, obviously, which again comes back to that personal incredulity, but obviously, if this happened, this would be the case. Like, well, only if we assume... Boom, 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 boom. Um, and I don't really want to assume those things if I'm looking for the truth of something. Commonly, though, obviously, I suppose in, in normal discussion, this might be something you do, especially with people you know broadly agree with you, but when you're looking for problems in argument or when you're having an argument with someone you know disagrees with you, it's important to point out that what they're doing is begging the question. They're saying, well, you haven't supported the premises that make this conclusion. So I'm not quite sure how you've reached that point. And let's just go back and look at those premises. So can you show me that, um, in this case, for example, I might say, can you show me that people make food decisions based on food labels? Where's the evidence that that's the case? And if you can't, then actually your conclusion isn't as sound as you thought it was. Okay, um, finally, um, for today at least, that brings me to correlation implies causation. Now this is my wife will tell you is my absolute favorite and I come back to this all the time. Simply because B occurred after A does not mean that A caused B. Yeah, when people, for example, when people buy water, they also buy ice cream. Therefore, ice cream makes people thirsty. Yeah, um, you can hopefully immediately see the problem here is that simply because something can be correlated to something else doesn't mean that that something else caused it to happen. Uh, a very famous teardown of this is taken by the uh, the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster. Um, may you all uh, boil through your sins. Uh, <laughs> where they point out that, um, I believe it's the, the rise in global temperatures uh, correlates directly to the decline in pirates. Therefore, an increase in pirates would see a decline in global temperatures. Um, and they're making the argument purposely to be fallacious and to show that this idea of correlation implying causation is just unsound. Um, again, in a little way, it's a bit of an ad hoc in there. There's a bit of begging the question in there, um, and it kind of covers a lot of bases. Um, and I use it a lot. In fact, uh, when I get into these kind of philosophical discussions with people who I have them with quite often, um, before I even open my mouth, I go, "Yes, yes, I know what you're going to say. You're going to say causation doesn't imply uh, correlation doesn't imply causation doesn't imply causation." I say, "Well, yes, that's a problem, then, isn't it? That's a problem we have to address. It, it, you know, it just simply because." B comes after A doesn't mean that A caused B. Uh, and I think that's a really important point to uh, to think about. Okay, well, thank you all for listening. We're pretty much at the end here. Um, so I hope we can take some of this on board and uh, use it in your everyday lives to have better discussions with people um, and just talk about things in a more neutral way, I suppose. If, if everyone understands these rules, then no matter how much we might disagree on a political or theocratical basis, we can have a reasonable argument to decide at least where we stand or where we should stand or what's reasonable to believe.
Okay. So to be clear then, um, let's just quickly summarise. Um, have a think. When someone makes an argument to you, think to yourself, is this in fact a categorical syllogism? And the likelihood is that it's not, but can it be made to fit a categorical syllogism? Remember those six rules that we talked about earlier? Go back to those. And then, are all the premises that they're basing this on sound? Uh, are there any fallacies present that might invalidate the argument? And if so, what are they? How do they invalidate the argument? And how can you clarify that with the person? And then how can you change the categorical syllogism to move it closer towards what is actually true? Okay. Brilliant. So what now? Um, well, thank you all very much for listening to the first ever podcast of Home Absurdus. Please get in contact with me on my Twitter, uh, which is at Home Absurdus. That's at H-O-M-O-A-B-U-S-U-R-D-U-S. Um, and just let me know. Um, you know, if you have any questions, please feel free to ask them. I don't know if I'll necessarily answer them, but I'll try. Um, if you disagree with anything I've said or if you think you've got a correction... Um, or if you just want to say how much you enjoyed it, um, please do use that to get in touch with me in any way that you feel you need to. Uh, and on that note, please uh, share wherever you found this podcast with your friends. Um, it's both on Spotify and iTunes at the moment. I'm hoping to get it on other platforms soon. Um, but please let everyone know. Um, I think this stuff's really important and really useful to us as a peoples. Um, I truly believe we can come to a, a better understanding um, if we all follow some of these rules. And we can just get along with each other much better. Um, we can all better understand what makes a valid and sound argument and what's reasonable and what's not reasonable all right well let's quickly talk before i leave um next time uh, i'm going to be going over georgian jordan b peterson's the 12 rules for life an antidote to chaos uh, i've recently finished this book um and there are some points that i quite like and more points that i don't like um but we're going to have a look at that book next time uh, and break down um some of the arguments presented in it um, so yeah, if you're interested in hearing that, then please check back with me in a week or so's time. But it's been great. Uh, for now, I've been Home Absurdus, and thank you all very much. Mm-hmm.